Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. The Signpost Series is brought to you in conjunction with uh, Food Drink Ireland, uh, um, Dairy Sustainability Ireland, and National Rural Network. Uh, my name is Pat Murphy, Head of Environment Knowledge Transfer with Chagask. And this morning, I'm delighted to be joined by Owen Carton and Katrina Foley, uh, both involved in the Comera Upland Programme. Uh, Katrina, you might just give us a, a quick idea of what's, what's involved in the programme. Um, so, yeah, so we secured funding for an EIP project. Um, it's with a discussion group that I've been working with for a number of years. So it was just to focus on the Comer Mountains and the um, ecology of the mountain, a learning project for the farmers in which they engaged with us and other experts for 25 days. Um, so it was um, something new and the farmers put a lot of time into it. And it was one of the, the new small EIP programmes that were announced by the government there about a, a little over a year ago, is it? Yeah, a little over a year ago. So it's a it was a short project. And um, the main basis was educational for the farmers. Okay. Owen, how did you get dragged into this? Catherine Keane is to blame. Absolutely. No question mm. about it. I was happy as Larry until she came along. But it's, um, it's absolutely a great project to be involved, Pat, because in some ways, when I think about it, I think about country roads take me home because my mother is from Rathgormach, right? And I spent time on her family farm and I had an uncle farming over in Kilrossenty, right? And this is where I got my interest on those two farms in agriculture. And I suppose I remember walking up Coombe Chanon in 1959. I know I'm dating myself a little bit there, but I hope you're all bad at sums. Anyway. <laughs> Very good. Well, listen, without further ado, I might let you start because I think, I think you have a really great story to tell and, and a really informative story. So if you want to uh, share your presentation there and yeah. fire ahead. So um, thanks for the introduction there, Pat. Um, so yeah, my name is Katrina Foley and I'm a dry stock advisor based in Dungarvan County, Washford. And I'm the facilitator of the Washford Hill Sheep Discussion Group that put this project together. So I'm just going to give you a brief introduction of how the project came about. So this is the project team. It consists of 14 farmers, myself, Catherine Keenan, Michael O'Donoghue is our expert on history, geology and place names, and Owen Carton, our project manager. And this is a picture of us on our, one of our trips up to Glenwary in County Antrim. So the farmers are involved in 10 Cumra uplands. Six of them are commonages farmed in common and there's four privately owned uplands. They're covering 4,500 hectares, of which 3,000 of those hectares are within the Cumra Mountain Special Area of Conservation. There are 6,300 hectares within the Cumra Mountain SAC. So you can see here on this map, the mountains stretch from Glenwary up here in, uh, beside Clanmel, all the way down through the middle of the county, down to Camarglan, which is the nearest mountain to um, Dungarvan. So the 10 uplands are spread across the whole mountain range. And you can see in this map down here that the boundary of the actual SAC is uh, a lot smaller than the whole mountain range. So some of the mountains are outside the SAC 
and others then might be only half in it or maybe just the top of them might be in it. So in 2014, the NPWS issued a report that the Annex 1 habitats on the mountains, when they looked at 37 monitoring stops within the eight habitats, all the eight habitats were assessed as unfavourably bad. And I suppose this was something as well that I was finding hard to see. And I suppose I, as an advisor coming through the project, learnt an awful lot. And it, it led me to look deeper at the mountains as well. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with the discussion groups, uh, a discussion group is something that is when a bunch of like-minded farmers come together to discuss production. And it's generally a sheep, uh, dairy or beef based. Um, we advisors act as the facilitator within the group, facilitating the conversation and organizing the meetings. And sometimes we get in guest speakers. So the Washford Hill Sheep Discussion Group was formed in 1999 by Paddy O'Brien and its foundation in the group was the production of the Light Hill Lamb. So even back as far as this, this bunch of farmers were having a conversation about the mountain, but it wasn't to do with the habitats, it was to do with the production on the mountain. And they were talking that about that if the sheep was coming off the mountain in Bad Nick, if there was too many sheep up there, well, then they would have to put more inputs into her to get her right again. So their costs of production were going up if they weren't farming their mountains right. I've been working with this group since 2015. And this project started when a farmer asked at a discussion group meeting, what is an EIP? So from there, we got Catherine Keenan in as a guest speaker to one of our meetings. We visited the Suez EIP project in 2020, and this created awareness within the farmers of what other uplands were doing with EIPs. So we were left with two questions after that. How can we improve the profile of the Cumra in, in upland circles? How can we get the name out there with the Cumra Mountains that our mountains were important to? And what challenges were we facing and what do we need to do? So in the spring of 2021, the Department of Agriculture put out a call for a Eurovation Innovation Partnership um, Scheme application. There was a COVID lockdown going on at the time. So we pulled five names out of the hat um, for of the farmers, five of them to represent the bunch of the 14 farmers. And we all met together maybe five or six times over Zoom for a couple of hours to try and put the application together. And this is when Catherine Keenan introduced us to Owen Carton, who was giving us um, some assistance and putting the application together. And Owen eventually became our project manager. So we began a discussion about what issues we might consider in the project. The main one that stayed with us all the time was an ecologist and getting the upland assessed. From the very beginning, the farmers were saying, right, we know the mountains are protected. We know the mountains are important, but we don't really know why. Like, what's up there? What are we protecting exactly? Um, one farmer said at one meeting, had any of the other farmers grouse? He said, there's supposed to be grouse up there. I've never seen one. I would have thought I'd have stepped in a nest at this stage, but I don't know what a nest looks like. I wouldn't know their tracks. Will someone come and show us what's up there? So that's where that bit came from. Burning um, was there from the very start. Now, we dropped it for a while, but it ended up going back in at the end. It is a very controversial topic, but it does need to be addressed. And then there was a list of others. We mentioned drones. We mentioned fencing a lot, bracken control, genomics and breeding of sheep. Uh, there was a trip to Scotland mentioned and a helicopter even at one stage. So 
we managed to secure 118,000 funding for a 13-month project. We were after getting a brief extension due to the sudden passing away of one of our members, Willie Fraher, who was a great supporter of this project. We started work in July 2021. We have almost 95% of it complete with one site visit left to do. We're hoping to go up in September to the Pearl Mussel Project and the Wild Atlantic Nature and then just the write-up and the reporting to be completed. So I'll hand over to you now, Owen. Okay, so thank you, Katrina. And uh, I want to start with uh, the three innovations or pillars that we built our project around. Um, we have three project innovations. The first was that biodiversity is part of the natural uh, capital and heritage of the um, mountain. And um, we didn't want to treat biodiversity in isolation. Our second innovation was that we were uh, inspired by Brendan Dunford and the Burn Project is that we wanted to engage and win over the hearts and minds of the farmers because when they when you have that, when they know what they want, why they want to do it, what they want to do, and what they're trying to achieve, you stand in a much better position of actually achieving your outputs. And the final innovation or pillar was inspired by Gwyn Jones, who uh, published a paper, distributed a paper there, a, a discussion document about bringing farmers and rural communities together to deliver bigger and better uh, outcomes. So from that, we built the um, we built our project around three objectives. The first was developing training for the farmers, and um, because there is no training for upland farmers. As I said, we wanted to integrate it into the, the, the biodiversity habitat training to be integrated into the cultural and natural heritage. And we wanted to engage the, the local uh, rural community in, um, in the, in the uh, project and training. So to skip kind of fast forward to our main project outcomes, the evidence showed that our training approach built our farmers capacity. It kind of, we hope that it might provide a template for future upland training courses. And the discussion group model provided an excellent forum for learning, right? You know, Katrina was talking about that and it really does work that forum of people able to talk together. Interagency cooperation was required for actually essential for the delivery of our project. And our engagements with the rural communities were empowering for the farmers. There was a couple of issues arose for us. And the first one is like in all of life, um, more and better and honest communications are required between the actors. The conservation targets for some of our habitats, I think we need to have, what are the options? We need to have some uh, discussion about that. And I think when you look at what we're trying to do, you know, we ask ourselves the question, is our knowledge base up to the task of delivering these new services from uh, the uplands? And there's certainly no doubt that we need a new research knowledge transfer and demonstration program for the uplands. And I suppose the final issue was arising is what role, our potential role, could the next round of EIPs playing in uh, achieving or addressing some of these issues. Going back to the Comoros itself, uh, they're a glacial uh, landscape of national importance. They began their formation 400 million years ago. And um, 
with faulting and folding going on. And then if we come fast forward to about a million and a half years ago, what was there at that time then, there were, it's reported there were over 25 ice ages uh, happened up to about 12, the last one about 12,000 years ago. And the, that sculptured the mountain and gave us that unique and actually uh, beautiful uh, landscape that the Cumbras uh, provide. Now, um, the management of uplands, and I suppose we're talking about marginal areas as well, right, doesn't deliver, right, the returns from food production is not enough to make it viable. So, um, but there are new opportunities emerging, right, and these new ecological services like water supply from the uplands, flood control on the uplands, talk a lot of talk about carbon sequestration at the moment, public health and uh, recreation, biodiversity and habitats. And in addition, the results-based RBAPs, results-based agricultural payment schemes have emerged and are emerging in the new acres. And they kind of provide a new opportunity to develop and multifunctional uplands. But the delivery of these new services from the uplands is going to require new knowledge and uh, management. So our project was about preparing farmers to take ownership and engage in delivering biodiversity and uh, habitat outcomes with community engagement. It's very important at this stage to say there was 34 people listed here who with a whole wide range of skills who right throughout the project inspired us, supported us and encouraged us. And what we want to say is a big thank you to you guys, because without you, we wouldn't have been able to deliver the project. If we go back to the start of the project, the first thing we did was to kind of say, well, where are we starting from? And we did an assessment through a little survey where we sat down and did it all together. And what we found was that the farmers, the discussion group members knowledge of biodiversity and habitat was assessed at poor. They knew a bit about upland management, but it was fairly focused on production. And they knew a lot about the landscape because I suppose they're up there walking that landscape every week. As Katrina said, we're now at the end of the project and we're putting together this project report. And it's a very important report, we believe, because it is written in part by the farmers. In other words, the farmers have written stuff that's included in this report. And then the experts who helped us and ourselves, uh, the project team wrote the other sections. But the main thing is that we want the farmers to feel that they have and know that they have ownership. This is their report, not somebody else's. Its purpose is to supply backup information to what we did during the training course and to provide project legacy. So I'm going to go down through these uh, various sections and tell you uh, what we did. The first section, this was the introduction. It was written by farmers and we asked them to tell us their story of their upland and their commonage. And they wrote them down and we typed them up and they're included in the, in the report. We also asked them if they could draw a rough map of their upland and mark out the place names on us. 
and they did that. So what we've got is this in this introduction, the farmer's report, which gives them hopefully ownership of it. And it's a family legacy because in this section here, there was memories, uh, living memories um, happening. Uh, if we go on, you know, that there were strong teams and probably one of the biggest and strongest was how the mountain and farming it uh, has makes, the, makes them is, are part of what and who they are. So there's that strong tradition of farming on the mountain comes out really strong in all the reports. It was interesting to note back in the 60s, wool was the major output. That's where the farmers and their families made the money. Whereas now we're looking at lamb production as um, Katrina mentioned there in the introduction. There's lovely stories about gathering and shearing sheep together. Right. And these were in gentler times, you know, when time wasn't moving as fast as it is today and people got together and worked together. And there was, you know, all of them mentioned a bit of crack associated with that. The impact of snow was a big issue for the mountains. And you, when you think about it, if you get snow on the mountains, the sheep are in trouble up there and it's very hard to get up there and follow them. In, there was one event that kind of caught my eye and it was on one of the things was about 1947 snow and what it said it was talking about prior to that there were people living on the mountain right in houses on the mountain that they had flocks in 47 snow those flocks were very decimated really and they left the mountain and they were the last people living the mountain there's a bit of history repeating itself there in the uh, in the Comras. So the, first, the next section in the report is on geography and place names. How do we do it? We walked and we talked. And Michael O'Donoghue here, who um, Katrina said is was our project geographer, Gael Gore, he's an upland walker and he's a passionate interest in the um, Cumbra Mountain. So we were very lucky to have uh, Michael as part of our, our project. And what he did was he went went up the walked the 10 commonages or and six commonages and four upland with the shareholders and the owners and they shared their knowledge right of the landscape and the place names and when we were finished that michael came down and michael wrote a section for the report on the geography and this is a map so where he described the feature he marked it out where he was talking about it on the map he did exactly the same with place names, wrote up the section and um, marked out where the place names are on it and also gave an explanation of the root of the place names. And, that, and you know, he was very much helped in that process by Canon Power, who published this book, The Place Names of the Dacia, in 1907. And again, the output of that is it's a legacy in the report for the farmers and their families. And because Michael uh, gave the talk in uh, Ballymacarbury uh, Community Centre on the geography of the upland. So that was, we had that community engagement there as well. Kind of sticking with the cultural element of the project, we had Hugh Carey from the National Monument Services, and he came down to us. And we, uh, he gave us a walk or introduced us to some of the monuments on Coomargan. Now, we didn't do them all because there are 111. Coomargan is the first place people settled on the uh, Cumbras. 
And he also, Hugh also gave a talk to the local community in the Rathgarma Community Hall. And I just want to mention that we had two other speakers who gave talks, uh, one on the Burton debt of clustered villages on the Cumbra Mountains. These were villages when people moved onto the Cumbra Mountains at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, and lived and worked on the mountain and their death in the early 1900s. And then we had Sean and Sheila Murphy, local, another two local historians, and they talked about the folklore on the mountain. So going back to the uh, monuments, as I said, they're the first, the monuments are the first records we have of activities on the Cumbra Mountains dating back to about 4,000. Kind of interesting that those first settlers were hunter-gatherers, right? But then to improve secure food security, they started to domesticate animals and grow crops. So in some ways, that tradition and definition of the farmers on the mountain of who they are and what they are has the roots back to those early settlers 6,000 years ago. And that roots is relevant to the communities, the local communities that are living there. So in the report, right, we provide a resource. In other words, we have talk about what monuments are on the uplands. Some of them have very few. And like, as I say, Kumargan has over a hundred. That is, provides a legacy for the farmers and the family. And we garnered community engagement by the talk that uh, Hugh gave. The next thing was rivers and streams. They're a very important part of the upland ecosystem. And we had again walking and talking. Philip Murphy of Lawpro and Cottle Summers of uh, ASAP did the walk with us. And Fran Igo spoke about the rivers and lakes on the um, Cumras and told us a good story about the Arctic char, the fate of the Arctic char on the, uh, in Coomshanon Lake. When Philip and Connell brought us up the mountain, Philip showed the farmers how he takes a kick sample and how he uses it to assess the quality of the um, water there. Connell discussed some of the issues of where uh, upland farming can impact on water quality, like erosion leading to sediment getting washed in, or burning leading to burnt ash getting uh, come in, dealing with sheep dip and supplementary feeding. So again, what we were doing here, we was trying to grow the knowledge of the farmer. We provided in this report, which uh, Philip provided us with a little summary of the river and their current status in terms of quality. And um, we provided appendices in there on best practices. And again, the talk meant that we had community engagement. The next section, in the report are the bird and mammal survey and the Cumra birds and mammals and plants. So our ecologists in Oakwind, they were with us all through the project, our partners, and they conducted a snapshot of the birds and mammals. And so you may ask why, but it was this question that the farmers raised very early on. So they did that for us. And they produced a, a little report on each of the nine uplands that they think and identified where the birds and the mammals were identified on it. And then we moved on from that to the next section, which was in the report on the common Cumbra birds, mammals, and plants. So here we, jo Oakwin was joined by 
Helen Lawless and Mountaineering Ireland. And we put together uh, this uh, section in the report where we had a picture of the bird, the plant or the mammal and a little description. And this is within the report, a resource for the farmers and the families. But we went a little bit beyond it in that in terms of community engagement, Helen is working furiously at the moment to finish off this Walking with Wildlife brochure, which is an insight to the key flora fauna of the Cumbra Mountains. And this will be available for uh, hill walkers and locals and kind of brings that habitat biodiversity to the wider public and the, the good on the mountain. And we hope to launch that in early August. Some of us in the project were lucky enough to take uh, part in the Burn Bio Heritage Keepers training. And one of the outcomes of that for us was that we put together uh, uh, posters on the birds, the fauna and the plants for schools. And we distributed them to the six primary schools um, just before they closed in, uh, in uh, June. The next section that we dealt with in the report, this was flock management. And all, what we did was we asked the farmers to, we gave them a bit of a, a structure there, asked them to kind of describe their upland uh, management. So what we have got now in the report is a snapshot or a record of their upland management. And again, by writing this themselves, they didn't get anybody else to write it, they wrote it. And it's part of a legacy too in the, in the report. And I'm just going to take a little sidestep here um, to talk, say a few words about grazing management. If we look at grazing management for habitat, there is guidance out there, right? And it's about stocking rate. And when we looked at the information insofar as we could that we got from the uh, uh, flock management reports, we were able to say our farmers were in general within it particularly for our upland farmers were within the limits. There was no exceeding of them. But then in most things, when it comes to upland, I contact um, <clears throat> Declan Byrne of the Suez Project to get myself head straightened. When I was head straightened, and when I was talking to him about it, Declan came up with the four hours of grazing, which I think is an interesting and useful way of looking at grazing. It's not only about stocking rate. That's the right number of stock. It's also about the right type of stock. It's also about grazing the right upland areas, and it's also about grazing them at the right time of the years. So I think that there is a need to develop the evidence base to underpin that and to expand it to take account of these the other uh, right um, grazing management. And there are special challenges in doing this compared with lowland farmers because on common edges where we've multiple shareholders, keeping, you know, when you talk about keeping for, uh, sheep on the right area of the upland, that can be quite difficult. So there are particular challenges there. And I certainly think there's a need to do some more or there's a need for new work on that. When we talk about the Cumbra Mountain habitats, you know, Katrina mentioned there that there was some awareness, right, among the farmers about the background. So we put in a, a chapter in here, and we were helped by Endon Mullen of National Parks and Wildlife on the background to the Habitat Directive, the Cumbra Report, the Cumbra Mountain Report that Katrina mentioned, the Cumbra Mountain Conservation Objectives. And again, in the report, this is 
supporting material for the farmer. And like it's clear we need more conversations around that. Moving on to the main area, which was the habitat training that we did. And the, the training was walk and talk and lots of walk and talking and then some. So the first thing that uh, Julie Larkin, our ecologist did was brought the farmers up and introduced them to some of the uh, habitats on the mountain. And we, she did two of those walks, but the, this was a very interesting comment after the first one from one of the farmers who said, this is the first time I've ever walked on the mountain and looked down at what I was walking on. It's a very telling comment in 2021 when we're talking 2020, yeah, 2021 when we did those walks. And then when Julie went up to assess the uplands and the commonages, they were, she was accompanied by the farmers and there was show them how she assesses them. And there was great learning, walking and talking going on in that. And then Julie provided the results and a little report on the potential actions, right? And, you know, again, what we were doing here was growing the, the farmer's knowledge. And you might be interested in some of the kind of comments from Julie's report, from the 10 report, trying to summarize here. She mentioned reducing grazing pressure in nine of the 10 reports. Now it's important to say that this was only on small areas of the commonage. It wasn't overall the, the whole, it wasn't on the commonage, it was areas within it. There was bracken control on six uh, uplands, primarily on dry heat. Purple moor grass control on wet heat on six in six reports. Uh, restoring uh, wet heat on four. Uh, scrub removal on two. There was uh, burning noticed on, happening on two uplands on wet heat. Reduced burning frequency, and there was on one upland concern about soil erosion. And again, our discussions around these was about growing uh, the farmer's knowledge. We know the new acre scheme is coming on board and there's going to be results-based payment and scorecards. So again, Julie brought the farmers out and showed them how the scoring card works in different habitats. Again, this was part of growing uh, the knowledge. The next section in the report was where we had this discussion with the uh, farmers and the uh, shareholders about their responses to the actions. And that section of the report kind of summarizes the response of the individual uh, farmer or shareholder, but it also includes several appendices on grazing management, prescribed burning, bracken and fern control, and again, this was the whole process of talking was growing knowledge and the report was providing the supporting uh, material. And you might be kind of interested in some of the responses to the suggested habitat uh, actions that Julie had made. Uh, you know, so the question was in these small areas, right, where Julie wanted the stocking rate reduced or the grazing pressure, not stocking rate, grazing pressure reduced. How do you do it? When we mentioned about using cattle grazing to control bracken or purple moorgrass, wasn't received initially very well, even though in the introduction, some farmers described remembering back in the 40s, having cattle grazing on the uplands. Controlling bracken, that was a big challenge, challenged on some, right? But it was interesting, there was one upland that bracken was just beginning to get in on, 
and like they were in the lucky position that they could control it and actually plan to control it for stopping in. But there are other communities where, you know, there's up to 20% of the communities covered in bracken. So they found that very challenging. Bog restoration, I suppose the funny thing there was when we mentioned that somebody said, bring back the helicopter that, um, to kind of, we're going to deal with that or to deal with that. The next thing and the final bit of the training was prescribed burning. We had a talk and demo, and we we're very grateful to Kieran Nugent from DAFM and John Casey, who provided the training. And, you know, an interesting thing about the demo was this is us up on the hill in February on the day we were supposed scheduled to do the burn and uh, all ready to go but John reckoned conditions weren't right to do it. So we didn't actually get to do the demo. And I suppose it highlights the difficulty upland farmers face with burning uh, in the open season for burning. Um, and again, what we saw here was that we have growing, growing the farmer's knowledge. And what we did is we worked with the farmers and produced an upland draft prescribed burning plan for them that they can use in, in the future. The other uh, project activities, Tuesday tea talks, these were for the community engagement. I've mentioned those already. They were very successful. And the communities got into the spirit by bringing in uh, school uh, bands and choirs to sing to us. Farm visits, we did a number of these uh, um, uh, farm visits from the school. This was part of the heritage keepers training the outcome from that. And it was really successful. You want to see the farmers running those days. They ran them. They wanted to tell the school kids about their mountain and what they were doing on about doing on the mountain. And like what came across in the responses that we got from the teachers was the passion and the pride that the farmers had. And um, the sheepdog trials were very popular uh, with those farm visits. And then finally, we had these site visits. Uh, Katrina mentioned we went to Glenwerry where we met Brian Irvine, who gave us a great initial insight into the new um, ecosystem services like um, carbon sequestration and the work that he is doing, that water control and that. And again, this was about growing knowledge, community engagement here. And those community engagements, I felt really empowered uh, the farmers. So nearly at the end now, our project, we we're preparing farmers to take owner, ownership and engage in delivering biodiversity and habitats. They put in 25 days into this training program and working with us on learning with us during the program. So how did it go for them? We got an Ethan Upton from Chagas Athan Rai, she's a sociologist, to assess the knowledge. And here are her preliminary results. The farmers acquired new skills, right, through the project engagement activities that I've been talking to you about. They really liked the learning by doing with the experts on the mountain. And one thing that really came across uh, to Anita was that it was a conversation. It was they that they they felt, and particularly with the ecologist Julie, that she listened to them. She wasn't telling them. There was that exchange and that worked very well. And that's what I mentioned there about the school visits and the community or the school visits to the farms. 
that was very empowering for the farmers. They really got a lot out of it. And the community got something out of it. And then there is, they were very pleased with the kind of impact, you know, the kind of discussion on the traditions, the history, the place names and the local farmer practices, and that there's a record there for, for them in the future. So just to finish up, our approach may pro provide a template for future farming uh, upland training course, which I believe are definitely a necessity going forward. We increased the knowledge of the farmers, greater awareness and ownership. I think we achieved that. And our engagement with the rural communities were worthwhile and rewarding and empowering for the farmers. And then some of the issues, right, that are arising, we must continue more and better communication, more evidence to underpin the actions to deliver uh, multifunction, multifunctional outcomes. We need to talk about the targets and management options for some habitats, some of those in, in, which are in unfavorably bad condition and possibly others. There is a need to develop a national integrated upland research and knowledge transfer and demonstration program where we can bring farmers to show them the impact of the management. And then at the end, we know there's a new round of EIPs and we should be considering what role can they play in maybe addressing some of these issues. They won't address them all, but they may uh, provide some output. So just to say thanks to all the people, those 34 people and our farmer group who made the project work as a great uh, working exper learning experience. And we did have a bit of crack along the way. Thank you. Thanks very much, Owen. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. A huge amount of food for thought. A reminder to people to uh, post your questions in, in the uh, Q&A uh, section. Um, it strikes me, I suppose, we over the, the, the last number of years, and I suppose Catherine and I have been involved in discussions on how we try and achieve through various schemes improvements in, in, in uplands. Um, and a lot of money is, is moving in, in in one way or another in, into those areas. But it's beginning to sound to me like we have forgotten the, the magic ingredient, and that's the people that are there. Uh, and in terms of, of the supporting and, and resourcing of the, the people, the building of a pride of place, and those are some of the things that you seem to have, uh, I suppose, tackled in, in this project to to great effect i think that's right pat uh, and you put it very well like i think our thought was great schemes out there uh you know uh focused on improving the uplands and but they take time right and what we said at the beginning was if if we could change and help the farmer and focus our attention on the farmer, build his knowledge of it so that he's able to take on the actions and implement them, that we might get a better bang for our buck. So one of the kind of things that we've been talking about maybe in future ACMs or future schemes, maybe not the acres coming up, but education and training would be an essential part of it, right? Or an important part of it to, Build a confidence. And like we saw that in the farmers. I don't know, Katrina, do you want to add anything to that? 
Um, yeah, and I suppose one part of the um, project with the farmers was it, it actually gave the opportunity to the farmers to show off their hills. Do you know, there was a lot of external people coming on. And I suppose we we look at agriculture and we think of the nice cattle. They're after putting on loads of weight or the dairy cow, God, she's producing loads of milk. But I mean, we have to enable farmers to be able to look at the environment that way and produce their habitats like that as well. Okay, Catherine, a number of questions coming in. Yeah, um, very complimentary, but you'll probably mention that at the end. Uh, it'll, it would be interesting to hear from Owen and Katrina in relation to lessons learned for this project for acres. And as we know, that's right up to on, on us. But what changes to existing advisory approaches and new advisory skills, if any, are needed for its successful implementation by the advisory services? So is there anything we can learn short term and maybe then longer term as well? Um. So I suppose the, the biggest thing about schemes is it's very hard to get everything to fit into this one scheme. Um, one thing about the, the mountains in this project, and I'd, I'd say it's the same for mountains all across Ireland, they're all very different. And then all the farmers within them are very different. And um, the way they farm it as well is completely different to how they have worked their lowland, how much lowland they have, what other enterprises are going on. So you really need to look in really closely on the individual, on the farmer, um, and then go out on the mountain and kind of see what's going on. Um, the other thing then I suppose about schemes is the one day training program. And I've done many of them over the years between Reps, Glass and AUS. I don't know how you get you get the training across in a one short day. It's, it's very hard to engage at that level. Um, time as well then in schemes, I mean, they're paying for a service to get into the scheme and time is money. But I mean, to do things right, to get a good engagement from the farmer, to learn everything that's going on, the advisor has to give that time. Um, so I don't have any real answer. I just have a lot of questions. I think Acres is certainly part of the solution and I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with the cooperation project and what options are going to come there. Yeah, and, and just to... Add, sorry, Catherine, just to sorry, add to on. that, I suppose the question was, what are the lessons? Well, like I think one of the lessons that we feel is if the uh, the new schemes cooperate, invest in time in training that I believe based on the evidence that we got from the training that we put in, there's a very good return on that, both in terms of the investment, in terms of return on the money invested in the training, and in terms of the skills of the farmers who are going to implement the actions going up, they know why they're going up. They know what they're going to do. They know why they're doing it. And that's a big help. They take ownership. And I think, you know, so that would be, I think, incorporation of training. And I, I, I just pick up on the point that Katrina made there is that training, you know, is around the country. So there's great opportunities for the new um technical universities to and Chagas to offer these training courses built around that conversations, uh, communications and time. So I, I suppose a question that strikes me from the uh, description of, of what you have, I suppose, broadly um, uh, classified as training, it strikes me as being a, a good bit more than, than, than that. And, and the engagement of, say, a lot of professionals from NPWS and other organisations with the, the farmers 
seems to be part of it. So it's it's it goes to me. It strikes me you went a long way beyond the normal kind of training with an individual trainer. You you went into a holistic approach of bringing the farmers and a lot of the professionals who uh, uh, who are working in this area together. How important was that? And can that be replicated in what you just what I might describe as a traditional training course, or is it something that we need to actually build into the process? I I don't know. I feel it was really important because, like, when you're dealing with the uplands, it's multifaceted, right? You know, there's not the all the information doesn't reside, and that it's that cooperative approach, right? Uh, I think you know that's what we need is the different agencies talking to each other, the different experts getting together. And again, what we picked up in our project was the way they engage with the farmers, right? You know, that they talked to them. The farmers often said that, own, you're not talking down to us, you're talking to us, you're listening to us. And you're getting, you know, what the EIPs were brought in to do, which was create a better balance between the top-down approach and the bottom-up approach. So um, I take your point about the training. Maybe that's not the word. Maybe it's capacity building is what I should, the words that I should be using, because you're right. It's beyond training within those pillars of not treating biodiversity as a single. It's a whole mountain, right? There's a whole lot of things happening up on that mountain and we're bringing them together. And the other thing that's, you know, again, going back to Brendan Dunford, which kind of always stuck with me, you know, that helps bring the hearts and minds of the, you know, you know, when you know what you're trying to do, you know, when you know why you're doing it, then I think you can actually deliver those rather than um, kind of not be sure about what's happening. Sorry, I don't mean to ramble. Yeah, no, and I, I suppose, and, and I'll shut up then and uh, Catherine knows on you, but uh, I suppose one of the, the, the senses you get from the uplands generally is a, a sense of pessimism about the role of farmers, the age profile, the dem demography, uh, and I suppose I suppose one of the the questions, and it might be difficult to answer, but did you get a sense that when you engage with farmers in in, in this way, you you get more of an optimism about what the potential is of the uplands, or is it too early to say that? No, I don't think it's too early at all. And the the biggest, you know, one of the big outcomes that Anita picked up was how the engagement with the, the rural community empowered them, right? And when the school children visited and came back with their comments about how passionate they were, right? Every, you know, they, they felt that they were listened to, they felt that the community understood and it gave them great hope for the future. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that they felt now, okay, we only could make small efforts in the size of our project, but they felt now the community is with us. And this moved that pessimism away to optimism with the idea that there are new potential sources of income coming down the line. I don't know, Katrina, do you want to add to that? Yeah, and I suppose there's one thing um, that I just want to link back, I suppose, to the training, and that's the word exposure. Um, you mentioned Brenton Dunford, their own, and that's one of the things that stuck in my head that we had Brendan talking to the farmers at one of the tea talks and they were absolutely blown away by him after the tea talk when I was talking to them. They were saying they had never heard anything like that before. 
And I, I was saying back, well, were you not reading about that project in the paper? Did you not know about it? And they were like, yeah, we, we knew about it. We knew something was going on, but it's not what they're drawn to in a paper. But when they saw him up there talking to them in, a, in a, a, a smallish group, there was probably maybe about 40. There was the farmers and the community were there as well, about 40 people. He really, really connected to them. like, And they don't get exposure um, to that kind of thing a lot, do you know? So that's just one word I'd like to, to link back to, to the project. Okay, Catherine. I'll, yeah, I'll and I just, just on my own side, Pat, I suppose moving, this was an example of training and, and the power of the discussion group. So it's some kind of a cross between formal training and the use of the discussion group, which we are in, in lowland agriculture are very familiar with, but you know has never been used in the uplands, although we are trialing that in the wild plant nature. Um, just, and just one question just about, is the final report available to the general public? Uh, we have to be very careful about that because they're very personal. You know, there are details there, particularly under the plot management. But yes, and I know you'll make sure we deliver those. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But I just want to go back to something you said there about the training, the discussion group, because it's important to link it into the SUAS project and the development of the college groups there as an approach that Declan and SUAS have pioneered. And what I'd be saying is, yes, the groups work, but I think an important thing to realize is our group is a mature group. They used to working together and like, you know, they kept, they're functioning very well. So, yes, I think that group and maybe even building it into the college group, if that's something that goes forward, is a good approach. Uh, just a comment about from a farmer uh, about having farmer on the the commonage for the summer, but would need virtual fencing to get the benefit of them. But we won't we won't maybe dwell on that. Just the comment. Um, I suppose from the farmer's point of view is what do you see as the biggest message and opportunity for upland farmers to protect the uplands? What's the best opportunity for them to protect our uplands? Well, I, I I don't know. I, I may step out and uh, step out of line here, and maybe say learning about them, right? You know, like that. When they know about them, then they know how to how you know what they can do about them. And like as uh, Katrina said there about when Brendan was up talking to us, right? You know, they kind of knew about it, but didn't know about it. And it wasn't until they actually saw it up close and personal, right, that they actually engaged with it. Does that make sense or does it answer your question? Yeah, yeah. And is there any plan for ongoing assistance and monitoring specifically on the cameras? Not well, our, go ahead, Katrina. Yeah. Well, the discussion group is going to stay going and we're going, we have been very, we basically stopped all focus on production for the last year while this project was going on. So we're going back looking at production, but I've already had the discussion with the farmers and we have said we'll definitely be doing an environmental topic at every meeting or every second meeting. We certainly won't let what we've done so far go. And sure, we might try and do something similar again. I don't know how we would do something similar, but what or what the next step would be, but we, we might look at it, we'll see. You know, there may be a further opportunity in the new IAPs, EIPs, but we, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think the main message is that like what we did worked and it should be considered it's be out there. Like, we're not saying we're entirely right, but it is an idea that seemed to work for us uh, in, in the Cumbers. And just a question for Katrina about the importance of, of talking about the production and the um, environment together. 
at the same time on the same you just it's just brought it up there because you mentioned you may do it at every meeting is yeah. that important rather than segregating it well I think so I mean I was a reps planner for years and I've worked in environmental schemes for years and even at the groups before we would do a little bit of work and I'd say I'm taking off my production hat now and I'm putting on my environmental hat like segregating them but they were they the environment tends to be linked back to the schemes nearly all the time it needs to be linked more in production because they are all linked like if if the habitat isn't functioning right if there's problems that will mess up the production eventually we might might be a long time before we see it but it will happen so focus on everything as a a, a big group together needs to be done more i think um yeah, a uh, really great talk and discussion. Couldn't agree more that the crucial issue is people talking openly and respectfully to each other to identify what's being done, what the impacts are, what can be done practically to improve uh, uh, negative impacts um, sporting. Yeah, that's OK. Is Acres Cooperation Project uh, not the next step for this group? Probably will be for most of them. Um, it's a... Um up to themselves you know it's a voluntary scheme so it'll be up to the individual whether they want to go in or not but I would assume a vast majority of them would and I, I you know they're going to go into that scheme in good condition like they're prepared for it a little bit better than if there wasn't you know so and I think they'll be able to contribute to the scheme and its evolution over time in terms of what's going on and what measures they decide uh, to, uh, to implement and Pat, just before we finish, to, to, to maybe we, I didn't say it at the beginning, but this is part of four weeks series. Um, we had Katrina Douglas last week to, giving us kind of the opening about the condition of the uplands. And next week we have um, we have the Wild County Nature, Derek McLaughlin, and we have Killian Kelly talking, just going back to that man's comment about the cattle on the uplands. Um, so I think, yes, yeah, so just to, to remind everybody, it's the four week focus and they will all be available on the on the on the website afterwards okay and uh, i suppose one, uh, one of the questions I, I, there there are and there is provision for an increased level of of uh, uh eips in in uh the next phase of of the the cap strategic plan are you planning to extend this into a maybe a, a longer term pro uh, project or is that is too early to say that or we get this one finished first anyway okay. <laughs> yeah. before we start again okay oh listen i i, I think from the comments coming in there's a, a an absolutely huge appreciation for the presentation you've given this morning but i think also for the the, the work that you have have taken have taken on katrina i think in terms of taking on something like this along with the the busy role of uh, that, that you have uh, in what you might describe as the day job. I mean, a lot of this, I, I, I suspect, is, is extra effort. So huge congratulations in terms of, of the learning that, that there has been in this in, in, in a very short space of time and the potential example it sets, I think, for a, a potential direction for what it does, needs to It, to, it to does go happen. back to the farmers. Like, if I didn't see it in them that they wanted this, it would never have happened. And on uh, again, uh, bringing I think your inimitable skills to to bear in in, in terms of of uh, I suppose understanding issues and 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 uh, uh, bringing a project forward. I think a huge amount of, of, of uh, yeah, yeah. We we you know it was it was great, and like the farmers we worked with were great. The communities we worked with were great, and like as I said, we had a bit of crack as we went along. You know, it wasn't 
you know, we it was good. So yeah. thank you. And I suppose a final comment is I think in the uplands, if we don't deal with the human aspect, we're never going to deal with it by by uh, trying to, to deal with it without bringing along the people. So thank you very much for thanks, your, 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 your uh, presentation. And just to say thanks to our production team of, of uh, Yvonne uh, Mar and uh, uh, Andy Boland. And until next week, uh, hopefully we'll see you, see you all again. Thanks very much. Bye. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.